In Session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week for the past week, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Road to Character by David Brooks. The Road to Character by David Brooks. Again, another book I judged by its cover and a little bit that I read about it. Um, But I think it's important for us to focus on character. Uh, In the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey talks about the difference between the personality ethic and the character ethic and the idea that many self-help books in the last half century have focused on the personality ethic how to look like a good leader, how to make people like you, how to appear to be certain things. And it's more of a personality or surface type of a thing. But really what we should be striving towards is to build and improve upon our character, which is deeper. So that's something that uh, made this book stand out to me. So looking forward to reading it and talking about it with you next Monday, The Road to Character by David Brooks. Now, the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is Originals by Adam Grant, Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. And this was a interesting book, very easy to read, lots of nice stories that uh, exemplified what he was talking about in the book. Um, but when you, you think about originals or people who change the world, what I think is interesting is that when we look back in history, very often it just seems that Certain people were destined to be great and destined to change the world in whatever way that they did. But really, when we look at history or we see what happened, it wasn't destined. They had to take steps. It wasn't for sure going to end up the way it was. They maybe even doubted themselves. They weren't sure of themselves and things might not have gone the way that they did. So I think it's something always good to think about or realize that when we think back We think of these people like uh, they had to become who they became, but they had to make choices. They had to make risks. They had to sometimes try when they weren't sure and then see what happens. And we remember them in a certain way, but when it was happening, it was very different. So Gandhi wasn't Gandhi until Gandhi became Gandhi. Or Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't Martin Luther King Jr. until Martin Luther King Jr. became Martin Luther King Jr. They didn't become who we remember them or how we remember them until they did something. It wasn't just destined for them to be who they became. And I think that's important to realize. Here's a paragraph from the book that I liked early in the book. He says, ultimately, the people who choose to champion originality are the ones who propel us forward. After spending years studying them and interacting with them, I am struck that their inner experiences are not any different from our own. They feel the same fear, 
the same doubt as the rest of us. What sets them apart is that they take action anyway. They know in their hearts that failing would yield less regret than failing to try. Those last two lines I really like. What sets them apart is that they take action anyway. And they know in their hearts that failing would yield less regret than failing to try. And I think that's so true that we have to realize, and there's lots of quotes. I think Mark Twain has a famous quote about how you're more likely to get a regret at the end of your life, the things you didn't do, not the things that you did. And many of us have probably felt that before. And also this idea that people who have made great changes in the world, people who have contributed to the world becoming a better place, it wasn't that they, it was easy for them. They were probably afraid they might have doubted themselves, even people who we now maybe glorify and turn into gods and goddesses. They doubted themselves too. And that's important for us to keep in mind. And also for me, important to keep in mind when we maybe glorify people and make them larger than life or um, bigger than or better than the rest of us. Really, that's not true. They were still human beings. They might have done something incredible. But we have to be aware of when we make people gods, we uh, somehow take away their humanness too, which maybe it seems like a good thing to be elevated in that way, but I think it takes something away as well. But nonetheless, but this idea that people who became great or did great things, it wasn't that it was so easy for them. And we should remember that because when it comes to our own life, when we haven't done the great things that we can do, sometimes it seems like it's not going to happen because we think, well, if it's going to happen, it's just going to happen. Or if it's meant to be, it's going to happen but we have to make things happen. We have to take those risks. We have to take those steps or else nothing will happen. And so being an original, being someone who changes the world is not easy, but each and every one of us can do it. One of the things we have to do first, and he mentions in the book, is we have to be willing to challenge the status quo or at least even question the status quo. And that's why I think it's so important for us whether you're a parent or an educator, to keep this in mind, that when you're talking to your kids, you talk to them about things. You might say there's rules for the home or whatever it might be. But one, you explain why things are the way they are. Because if there's a rule for the home, it should make sense that it's the rule of the home, not just because I said so or because that's the rule. We don't stay up after this time or you don't stay up after this time because you want to be rested tomorrow when you go to school and it's also for your development and growth and you need to get that rest not just this is bedtime and that's the time you have to be asleep no matter what we want to explain to them the rules um, also we have to make it okay for them to question our rules or what it is make that a conversation to show them that there is a possibility to question things are not set in stone but also that their ideas matter and they are important. They, we value what they have to say. So first and foremost, we have to be willing to challenge the status quo. Anyone who was an original, anyone who has changed the world had to look at things and say, why do they have to be this way? I don't want them to be this way and ask for them to change or try to make a change. And that's very important. Um, there's a lot of interesting themes throughout the book. Another interesting one is sometimes we think of these great geniuses like Beethoven or uh, Picasso, and we just think they were just so good at what they did, and everything they did was amazing. But we see that that actually isn't the case. Um, Picasso had so many paintings and sculptures and drawings and other things, most of which did not become famous or are not 
well-known, where Beethoven and Mozart wrote many pieces of music, but most of them did not become famous or become well-known. So one idea he puts forward is actually we have to come up with more ideas. Don't just think you have to come up with one or two great ideas and those are going to change the world. Very often you might have to try lots of things, come up with lots of different things and produce, and then see which ones are going to be significant or important. But don't just wait to think you have to make one thing and it has to be perfect. And that's something that a lot of people do. We think, okay, I don't want to do this project or write this book or give this talk or whatever it might be, our project that we have in mind, our dream project. We think we have to wait till it's perfect and the timing is perfect to do it or go ahead and go forward with it. But very often this is our fear. And last week I talked about this, the fear that we have and the fear that comes with doing anything significant. Anything worth doing is going to bring fear, but we have to recognize the fear, but go forward anyway. And so we see a lot of these people that we consider geniuses. It wasn't that they just made one or two great things. They made lots of things and some of them weren't even very good. Even Shakespeare, some of his plays weren't that good. They weren't all masterpieces. Um, but we remember him for his masterpieces, the ones that were very good, and he created lots of good works also, but he had some that weren't so good. Or in sports, lots of athletes maybe have a lot of successful moments, but they had lots of failures or mistakes as well. Even Michael Jordan had a famous commercial where he would talk about the shots that he missed, the opportunities he had to win the game that he didn't miss, and actually that's what made him a success. So we have to be willing to try things and to produce things, to see what happens. And interestingly enough, we often are very bad at assessing which one of our ideas are going to be very good and which ones are not. And even he showed that Beethoven, um, based on I think it was letters that he had written, was very bad at guessing which one of his pieces would become very famous or become popular. He was not very good at that. So sometimes we're not a good judge of our own work. Maybe we're too close to it to really recognize what's the what's going to be popular what what people will enjoy and what they won't so create lots of ideas don't be afraid to try new things and speaking of trying new things even trying something unrelated to what you do can help you think a little bit differently so he found that uh, nobel prize winners in science very often had done some kind of artistic work too uh, whether it was painting or poetry or performance art, but they were involved with something else they were more likely to win, or you saw this more frequently, which shows that when we think a little bit differently, it actually allows us to broaden the ways that we approach a situation or problem. Or we found that fashion designers that lived in different countries for extended periods of time and worked for an extended period of time in a different country, they tended to be more successful as well. So we see the benefits of being able to approach things with different mindsets and that if we expand what we know, what we do, it can help us. One would think, how is practicing sculpting going to make me a better physicist? But apparently it does. It allows people to think maybe more creatively or a little bit differently than when they stay fixed in something. And just like in the book, How We Learned, that I talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, this last topic relates to it, but especially this next one about procrastinating, how when you are trying to especially look at something creative or an idea, actually sometimes leaving it unfinished can help. Like when you 
uh, start thinking about a problem and you get stuck and you take a break, it incubates because your subconscious will still be working at it even if you're not really aware of it. It stays in a way in the back of your mind or in your mind some way. And you actually might come to a more creative understanding or explanation for it. He shares the story of how Martin Luther King Jr. didn't start writing his famous I Have a Dream speech uh, until the night before he gave it. And he was procrastinating, so to speak. And even actually, famously, that I Have a Dream part wasn't included in his speech. Someone yelled out, tell him about the dream. And he kind of went off and was able to uh, talk about it. And, and it was really improvisation, but it was one of the most famous speeches and parts of a speech in all of history, or definitely American history. And it was improvised. It, a part, it was actually because he maybe didn't prepare it word for word, that he was allowing himself to be flexible in that way. And at the same time, going back to what I was saying before about generating a lot of ideas, in that year before, he maybe had given 300 speeches. So he had a lot to draw from because he had produced lots of ideas and talked about lots of things that made it more possible for him to be flexible in that moment to pick and choose what he wanted to say to create the best uh, speech in that moment. So interestingly, procrastinating, something that we think of as only a negative thing, when done in the right way, isn't actually all bad. Another interesting thing in the book for me was this idea we have of people who create great businesses um, or create these big changes. We think they're very risky people, that they just put everything on the line and go for it. But he found that many people who became successful entrepreneurs were not so risky. They actually sometimes kept their day job while they were trying to create this new career. They didn't always just go for broke, literally or figuratively, and give up on everything. They kept their day job or they kept themselves in school for a while until the business became successful. So it's not always this idea that you just drop out of school and put everything into one thing. Sometimes you can balance your risk portfolio, as he calls it, and you don't have to just go for broke and put everything aside uh, to go for what it is that you're going for. You can actually try so you don't have to completely abandon everything else and, and do something risky. Some of the biggest changers of the world were actually more uh, risk averse than you would think. Another interesting uh, point for me was, uh, you know, if we have to give a big speech or a big talk or go on a job interview or do something, most people will tell you, relax, calm down, relax. And of course, there is something good to maybe taking a few deep breaths to kind of gather yourself. But when you're really nervous and you're about to give a speech, let's say, and you're afraid of public speaking, you're not going to be able to calm yourself down. It's just really not going to be possible that you're going to be totally calm. So what's actually better to do, rather than just telling yourself, relax, 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 is to turn your anxiety or tell yourself that your anxiety is actually something more positive, which is maybe something like enthusiasm or excitement, because physiologically those will feel similar. And some of it is true. If you're going to give a big speech, you're probably nervous, but you're also excited kind of like that first day of school feeling where you're nervous and excited, you can be both at the same time. So you can tell yourself, you know what, I, I maybe to me, you can be honest with yourself, say I'm probably a little nervous, but I'm also excited. This is an exciting moment. Let me enjoy this moment. Let me turn this energy into my enthusiasm while I'm giving this speech. You don't have to just look at it as um, a negative thing, but especially try to tell yourself, I'm just going to get calm 
is probably not possible and maybe not even the best because, again, you might want to have some energy and excitement as well. He also talks about ways that you can promote in a culture, for example, of a company um, that dissent is okay. And I think that's really interesting. There's this company, uh, Bridgewater, and I think the CEO is Ray Dalio, and he's written a few books too, maybe one of them I'll read for uh, Book of the Week. But and in his company, he's very big on everyone being able to be open and honest and share dissent, even of him. And it was really interesting uh, he's the CEO and someone wrote a critical email to him about how he was so unprepared for a meeting and did a bad job in this meeting, which is itself unheard of in most companies to write a letter to the CEO saying you did a bad job at a meeting. But on top of that, he didn't just take kindly to that. More than taking kindly, he sh sent that email to the whole company showing that this is how we will communicate in this company. It's okay to challenge even me if you think I'm doing something wrong. And actually the way the principle there is that if you don't bring up something when something is wrong, you're doing a bad thing. If you notice something wrong and don't say anything, that's a problem. And they practice a radical honesty there, radical openness where you don't keep things, you're not afraid of conflict, you talk about things. And that's actually a really good stance to have. We want to make it where people are allowed to disagree, allowed to say they don't know if you did something well or right and share their opinion rather than feel like they're afraid to say anything because their job is on the line if they say one negative thing. And so if we want to create novel ideas, new ideas, innovation, we have to make it okay for people to make mistakes, but also to voice dissent that you can say if you disagree with the rest of the group, even if you're the only one, tell us what you think. Don't be afraid to share that. And related to to sharing what you think, sometimes people, to avoid what we call groupthink, which can happen when everyone feels like they're going to agree and they feel like there's a pressure to disagree, and because of that they might make bad decisions, um, what people will try to do to avoid that is they'll assign a devil's advocate. So they'll say, okay, you pretend like you're against our idea and say everything you think against our idea. But what they find is actually that doesn't tend to work out. When they've tried this, when people are faking being the devil's advocate, it doesn't work. But what does work is having a real devil's advocate, meaning actually having someone who disagrees with the idea share what they think and feel passionately. Um, that does work. So you can use that, but you have to make sure you're not just faking it. Because when you fake it, it doesn't work. They don't really uh, present the ideas in the right way. Um, and related to that, there was a quote, I'm going to try to remember it, it was, in this idea of when you're talking, everyone presenting their ideas the strongest, speak as if you are right, you know you're right, and listen as if you know you're wrong. Meaning that when you're presenting your idea, present it as strongly and the best way that you can. But also when you listen, make sure you listen as if you're wrong and you're trying to take in what the other person is saying as if it might be the right answer. So there is this balance of presenting your ideas strongly, but being open to hearing other things. But anyway, there's lots of things in this book about various aspects of innovation and being original, but I think it is so important for each and every one of us to recognize we can be an original ourselves, or we can think differently and be willing to take risks to challenge the status quo. The only way we can make progress is for people to look at what's going on in the world, what's going on in a, a relationship, a family, whatever it might be, and challenge it in question and say, how can we make things better or different? And the book, as I mentioned before, was a very easy read with lots of interesting stories and examples that really show you the messages you're trying to get across in the book. Um, but hopefully we all can take those risks and realize that 
it's not about not being afraid. It's about even if you're afraid, you do it anyway because the regret of not doing anything is worse than the regret you would get of just failing. So that was Originals by Adam Grant. And again, the book of the week for this week is The Road to Character by David Brooks. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, sometimes people will tell me whether it's in the course of therapy or they'll just hear people talk about he or she is a good kid. And we'll hear that a lot. A good kid. And I usually what good kid means is a child who is easy to parent or teach or really a child who is obedient Almost, it could be to a fault, but obedience is what we're talking about. Listens to what I say, does what I want them to do, doesn't act out, doesn't question, doesn't challenge. And I was also reminded of this because of the book I just talked about, Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World by Adam Grant, and this idea of how uh, you have to challenge the status quo if you want to be an original and you have to be able to question things. But this idea that parents very often will talk about like, you know, they'll come to therapy and they'll, you know, you can have a couple kids and one of them is a good kid and one of them's the bad kid. And usually good kid means does what I want them to do, listens, and bad kid is the one who doesn't do that. And now I can understand as parents, um, you know, I was visiting with friends last night who have two little ones and just seeing how much work it takes constantly taking care of these kids. It's incredibly difficult. So, by no means am I saying it's easy. It's very difficult to be a parent and multiple kids, it's even more difficult. So I get it that it's stressful and you have schedules to keep. You have your own things to take care of. You have to keep things clean, feed and do all the things you need to do. And so I get that it's easier if your kids always listen to you the first time, did everything you wanted them to do. Even before listening to you, you tell them once and they just kept doing the things you tell them to do. I get that it would be easier. And so usually what parents mean is that they like an easy kid, meaning a kid who does what they want doesn't cause any trouble. But that's not necessarily the healthiest kid. That's not necessarily what we really want to be raising. So I also hear this with people who go to dinner parties that are made for grown-ups, and then the kids are there, and the good kid is the one who sits down and doesn't do anything for several hours. You know, it's like I always say, if you have a four-year-old that sits still for three hours and doesn't move, we might think that's a good kid because they made life for the e adults easier, but that's not a healthy four-year-old. A healthy four-year-old should have energy, should want to explore, should want to go around, should want to interact, deserves attention, needs attention, and shouldn't be just sitting still for a long period of time like that. But again, to us, that's the good kid. And we have to be very aware of this and cautious that we recognize that, yes, it makes sense that when you're a parent and you're stressed out and you have a lot to deal with, it's easier for kids always did what you wanted them to do and did it the first time around. But that's not necessarily what it means to be a healthy child, just like a healthy adult. Um, you know, it just sounds like if you're the government and saying, well, I want my citizens never to question what we do or say or have any issues with what we do, and no matter what, they're just okay with it. That would be an easier citizen for the government, but it doesn't mean that's a good citizen who really loves their country or loves justice or loves good things. And so similarly, your kids just listening to you 
can't be the ultimate goal. So we have to be aware of that as parents, that we don't think of that as the ultimate goal because that's not a healthy child. Your child should be allowed to to confront you at times. They should have respect for you just like you have respect for them. But it should be okay for them to question things or to ask you something or to not be sure of something or to not want to do something. I mean, think about yourselves. Each and every one of us probably wishes we did a lot more things that we don't do enough exercise, meditate, take care of certain things, be on time with everything, be on time with our work, read more, spend time with family. There's lots of advice we can give to ourselves that we have a hard time following through on. How can we expect that our kids are just going to do everything we think is right all the time? You know, because I hear parents say this, well, it's better for him to start his homework earlier. Absolutely. I'm not going to disagree with you that it probably is better, but we know that it's not that easy to get things done on time all the time. Even as an adult, we have that problem, let alone a nine-year-old. So we recognize what things are good and we want to encourage them to do good things. But we can't act like it's crazy that they don't do everything on time or exactly like we want them to do. We can't even do that ourselves as adults. And we definitely can't expect that as kids. And we know that's part of being human. We're not going to be perfect. We're not machines. And so maybe that's another way of looking at it. That sometimes parents are looking for just a good robot machine who just does everything when they want, doesn't have big feelings because a machine wouldn't have feelings, but a kid's going to have big feelings. Sometimes they're going to be really sad or angry or anxious or mad at you and all sorts of things that it's harder to deal with. And I get that. It would be easier if they didn't react in that way as in the sense that it's more challenging to deal with. But again, you're raising a human being who's going to have all of these things and a healthy human being needs to have all those big feelings that can be difficult and also needs to be able to think for themselves and to challenge things. Uh, Sometimes I think it's funny. Parents will say, I got mad at my kid because when she went to school, the teacher said something mean or the teacher did something he didn't like. And my kid didn't say anything to the teacher. And then I had to go talk to the teacher for them, which I have issues with that itself. But when you sometimes ask the parent, how easy is it for your kid to challenge you, they say, oh, when they think about it, it's okay, it's not that easy for them to challenge me. So we want when it comes to us for them to be super obedient, do whatever we want uh, them to do, never talk back, never have big feelings, never have this. But then in the real world, everywhere else, we want them to know. We want them to stand up for themselves. We want them to challenge things. We want them to question things. I don't want my son or my daughter just to accept whatever someone says to them. I don't want them to just accept the status quo in the world or in their classroom or wherever it might be. I want them to speak up. But then at home, we don't want them to do that. So we have to realize and accept that, okay, when we have a kid and we're raising a child, we have to be ready to deal with these difficult things. It's similar to even being in a relationship where sometimes your husband, your wife, your boyfriend or girlfriend is going to feel things that don't feel good for you. You wish they weren't disappointed in something you did, or you wish they weren't upset, or they weren't sensitive about this or jealous about that or whatever else it might be. And um, even then, we're going to have an appreciation for their feelings and realize, okay, they're a human being. They're going to have feelings sometimes that might not even make sense to me, or sometimes might make sense to me. And they're an adult. So let alone with a kid, even more, we want to understand that they're going to have all sorts of feelings and things going on. And we want to make sure that we don't make them feel bad about that. And especially when it comes to making them feel bad about that, what's very common is when parents have multiple kids, the good kid is the listener, the one who's obedient, and the bad kid is the one that shows 
any kind of dissent of any kind. And the kids start to feel that. And so especially a child, let's say, who's going through a lot of feelings and emotions and maybe is angry with you or is upset or let's say is more anxious than the other child, so shows more uh, behaviors that you don't like than the other child, you're constantly letting that kid feel bad for who they are. And very often it's not that they're trying to be difficult. And I think uh, Claudia Gold in her book, The Early science developmental science of early childhood yeah the developmental science of early childhood talks about this idea that your kids aren't trying to be difficult we have to recognize that whatever it is they're doing whatever behavior it is they're trying to tell us something and it's up to you as the parent to approach things with a stance of curiosity to try to understand what is my child saying or expressing in, in his or her behavior right now i don't want to just think they're being annoying or weird or difficult um, I want to try to understand what they're telling me, but especially want to make sure that we don't send a message to our kids that one of them is good and one of them is bad. Especially again, if your child is just expressing their feelings, maybe one child is a little bit more calm than the other one. If the child is not trying to be difficult. That's just their place where they start. That's their starting point. It's like if you have two of your kids walk into the room and one is feeling very good about the temperature. The other one says, I'm cold, I need a jacket, and getting mad at the kid for needing a jacket. Okay, the kid feels cold. What are they supposed to do? It's not that they're trying to feel cold. It's not their fault that they're cold. That's just how your child feels in that temperature, and the other one feels okay. Yeah, it might be annoying for you to have to go upstairs and get a jacket and come back downstairs. I get that. But we have to recognize that your job as a parent is to take care of your kids also, however they are. Your child has an allergy. You can't say every day, oh my gosh, it's so annoying you have this allergy. I have to cook food this way or I can't make this. You just accept that they have an allergy and you work around it. You live with that. If your child has another medical condition, same thing. You hopefully won't make them feel bad if they need some kind of extra assistance or medicine or something, right? Every day, if you have to give them medicine, you'll say, oh, it's so annoying to take the medicine out of the bottle and put it and make sure we have enough of it and pick up the prescription. You just go ahead and do it. But we recognize that emotionally, our children also have different starting points and different needs. Some kids are going to need more from you emotionally, but it's not because they're trying to be difficult or trying to make your life difficult. That could just be who they are and how they are. So think of it that way. Maybe my child who's more anxious than the other child, and it takes them a little bit longer to feel okay going to a party or going to school or whatever it might be. Or my child who's a little bit more depressed, who maybe has a little bit more anger because of that depression. It's not that they're trying to be these things or they're trying to be difficult. It's just their starting point. It's like an allergy. I have to recognize that that's part of who he or she is. And so your kid is good, even if they're not listening to you all the time. And we also have to be always aware that the child that is super obedient and listening to you all the time, that could be a concern too. That child possibly is holding into lots of feelings because they don't want to bother you because you've shown them that you're going to reinforce positively when they're not being difficult and they see how you act with their brother or sister when he or she is showing their feelings. So they might be hiding their feelings from you. Doesn't mean they're always feeling okay. And they might be taking on a feeling of perfectionism. I want to be perfect for mommy or daddy so they love me. So we want to give our kids that space to not always get it right. They're going to be difficult sometimes. And being a parent is very stressful. But that's the job you've signed up for.
You know, it's like getting upset every time your car runs out of gas, so you have to put gas in it again. Part of having a car is you got to put gas in it. Unless you have an electric vehicle, then you have to charge it. But you have to be aware of that's part of having what you're having. If you want to have a kid, you have to be ready that it's going to be difficult sometimes. But recognize that it's not the kid's fault that it's that it's stressful. Parenting just is hard. So we want to be careful about labeling our kids as a good kid and the bad kid. Because even if it's in your mind, it's going to affect how you parent them. We want to try to understand that your kids very likely will be different. And that's to be expected. And that's okay. We want to make sure all of your kids feel okay being who they are and how they are. And don't feel bad about that. All right, we're going into our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, so I put a, a little survey, or maybe it's not a survey, but on Instagram where you can ask questions. And I appreciate everyone who does send in the questions. Of course, um, I can't get to most of them but I do keep them so that in future episodes, I'll keep that, them in mind. But someone asked about bad feelings, um, which is an interesting topic. One I talk about a lot, uh, even that idea of bad feelings, but even just this idea of feeling, letting ourselves feel. Um, some people like to say I'm not an emotional person or you know, not a feelings person, which is like saying I'm not a person who has temperature or I'm not a hot or cold person. Everyone has feelings all the time. Even we have feelings to things, to objects, to everything. Um, they've done research and they show that people, they'll show people two different, let's say Chinese characters that they don't know, but they'll have different feelings towards them. You don't really know why. It's not, it's not a conscious thing, but we always have a feeling. And the basis of those feelings is either telling us to go away, uh, to go towards something, approach something, or avoid it. That's really like the basic point or idea of feelings that's supposed to help us know what to approach and to avoid. And so we always have feelings. We always have them. The only idea or the, what we have to think about is if we want to be in touch with them, how connected you are to your feelings, that's something that people oftentimes don't know. And it happens a lot in therapy. You'll ask someone how they feel or how they feel about something and they say, I don't know. And it's not that they're lying or trying to hide it. Sometimes it could be that, but oftentimes it's just because they really don't know what they're feeling. They're not in touch with it. And people have a feeling or, and it is actually a feeling about this. For many people, they'd rather be rational than be emotional. And the problem is you can't, you can't just be rational because you always have feelings. It's always going to be there. And so when someone tells me I'm a, only a rational person, all that tells me is that they have no idea what they're feeling. More than likely, they have no idea what they're feeling and that it's actually affecting them much more than they realize. Because everything does at the end come down to feelings at some level, whether you want to accept it or not. Even if you say I'm rational and so I do this and this and this. If you start to look at why you do this and this and this, at the end of it, something is going to be like because it feels good or because it makes me happy. Something at the base is going to be related to feelings, even if you think it's not. Even if you say, I like to make a lot of money, it's because it makes you feel good. That's why you say money is the only thing that matters and I like numbers. Sometimes I'll hear people say that. No, I like it because it's numbers. Well, yeah, you want to make the number big and have a number that you like because you have a certain feeling towards making that amount of money and that number. 
It's not just rational. So if you think you're only a rational person, it means you're just not aware of yourself. You're not in touch with your feelings. And more than likely, your feelings are actually dictating a lot more or creating a lot more of your life than you realize. People who try to be purely rational in a relationship don't realize how often their feelings are making them do or say things or not or do or, or not say things or not do things that that are really important that maybe they're not aware of. You maybe don't realize why you're doing what you're doing. And in reading the book, um, I think it was last week, The Righteous Mind by uh, Jonathan Haidt, we see that we're always having feelings towards things, whether it's a political idea, moral idea, whatever it might be, and then afterwards we come up for reasons why. And you see people do this. Um, you'll say, do you think you you did that because you were jealous of your partner and because they don't like the idea of acknowledging they felt jealous because to them that feels weak, to them that feels like they're not a strong person, to them they've told themselves I'm not the kind of person who gets jealous or jealous people are this kind of person and I'm not that kind of person. You'll hear them come up with really good reasons as to no, it wasn't because I was jealous, I just really didn't like that person so I told them to go or whatever it is that they did. And I'll see it happen all the time in my personal life but also professionally very often you ask people what they feel and again I know they're not trying to lie to me but it seems very likely that they're either not in touch with the feeling or especially they don't want to acknowledge a certain type of feeling. Because here we see that it's not just about your feelings, it's the feelings we have about feelings. For many people, I don't want to be sad. Either it feels intolerable or because it feels weak. And that's a big thing about emotions is that people or feelings in general, people don't like the idea because they think it makes them weak. And I can get that because our feelings can sometimes feel out of our control. Our feelings can make us feel like we can't maybe do something we wanted to do, or our feelings can be very messy and not clean, and we want to be able to have control over everything. We want to be able to have that control, and emotions can make us feel like we don't have that. So we want to pretend like they don't exist, and they make us feel weak. And so if you find yourself kind of scoffing and looking down upon people who are emotional, oh, look at people with their feelings. More than likely, what that means is that you recognize you have feelings yourself. And because you don't want to, and you don't like that, you don't like that about yourself, but you're projecting it or putting it on to other people. So you'd rather look down at them, but really you're look down, looking down at a part of yourself, your own self who has emotions, has feelings. So if you find yourself doing that, and if you find yourself really looking down at anyone, we always want to look at, is there a part of me that I'm seeing in whatever person or persons I'm talking about that I don't like about myself. So very often people have feelings about feeling certain feelings, and so they don't want to have them, and they'd rather pretend like they're not there. So we're very good at saying, no, I'm not sad. The reason why, you know, I mean, there's kind of like these jokes, I'm just crying because like the wind is in my eye or something. But we, we want to come up with a reason to not feel those things because we have feelings about them or judgments about those feelings. And this is very common. Someone feels sad after a breakup and they say, oh my God, I'm so weak to be sad after a breakup. Why am I sad? And they'll get mad and sad about their sadness. You're a loser. How are you sad about this right now? Well, who cares? There's other people. There's all this, there's all that. Rather than recognizing a breakup can be painful. Let's try to understand what the feeling is telling me. 
It's just like if your arm started hurting, you say, oh my God, what's wrong with me that my arm hurts? What kind of weak individual has arm pain? This is stupid. This is crazy. But say, okay, why does my arm hurt? Let me understand. Maybe I worked out and I injured it. Did I bump it against something? We take that pain and that feeling as information. We should be doing the same thing with our emotions. I'm sad after this breakup. Oh, I really maybe felt attached to that person. I really did love them or I really did care about them or I really got blindsided when they broke up with me. I didn't expect that. So our feelings are telling us something, but because we have all these judgments about the feelings, we try to just get rid of them or pretend like they're not there because we'd rather not have them there because of how it makes us feel about us. And so if we can just accept this idea that as a human being, you're going to feel all types of feelings. You're going to feel happy and excitement and some of those ones that feel good, but you're also going to feel sadness and anger and even envy and jealousy, feelings that don't feel good when you're experiencing them, but are still very meaningful and valuable and necessary for you to be able to live a life and have relationships. You have to be in touch with those feelings. If you want to be in a healthy relationship, even if you want to be in a happy relationship, you have to be able to be unhappy sometimes. If you want to be in a happy relationship, you have to be able to be unhappy sometimes because in a happy relationship and in a close relationship, you're going to feel some things that aren't good sometimes. That's part of the process. It's the only way you can really be genuinely in a relationship is that at times you're going to have feelings that aren't pleasant. You're going to have to have conversations that aren't pleasant. If you allow yourself to get close to someone and feel really close to someone, there'll be times where they'll do things that you might not like that won't feel good if you really allow yourself to be in that relationship. So to live a good life, we have to accept that sometimes we have to not feel good. We have to accept that sometimes we're not going to feel in a positive mood. And this is why I can be very uh, against sometimes this um, philosophy of positivity. Yes, there can be some benefits to that, but when we take it to this place of you should always be happy, and if you're not happy, something's wrong with you or something's bad about you or you're ungrateful or you're this, that, or the other, I have a big problem with that. If we think that the only way I'm happy or the only way I'm healthy, excuse me, so I'm happy all the time, then all of us are going to feel unhealthy or ungrateful and bad and weak or whatever else. But we have to accept that sometimes you're going to be unhappy. It's just like the analogy I use is, okay, being awake is better than being asleep because when you're awake, you can be productive and do things and get things done and being asleep is bad. So you should never be tired because tired is bad. No, you, you, you need to sleep. You're a human being. You need to get rest to recoup, recuperate and get prepared for the next day and this, whatever else. They're still trying to figure out all the functions of sleep, but we know we need it. So you need that. And so as a human being, does it feel good to be happy? Yeah, but we need to be able to feel sad too. And the sad thing, kind of no pun intended there, is that if we don't allow ourselves to feel the negative emotions, we really don't feel the good ones as genuinely either. So if we're not allowing ourselves to feel our feelings, we don't get to just pick and choose them. And this is uh, Brene Brown in her TED Talk mentions this, and I thought it was really interesting, this idea that you can't numb just some of the feelings. If you numb yourself, if you disconnect yourself from your feelings, you disconnect from the bad and the good. If you're not open to feeling sadness, you're going to close off the amount of joy you can feel. 
And so, it, you know, a few nights ago, just this thought came to my mind. Some people don't want to feel anything, but then they don't get to feel anything. If you don't want to ever feel your feelings, you don't ever get to feel how good it can feel to feel close to someone and feel loved by someone. If you don't allow for yourself to have the pain of being disappointed in how someone treats you, you don't also get to enjoy the feeling of what it's like to be loved by someone, to actually have someone do something that you like. We can't just say that the good things make me happy, but the bad things don't make me feel anything. That doesn't work. And that's kind of what the positivity philosophy sometimes promotes is that, oh, I'm grateful for this and this is beautiful and I'm grateful for my friendship and the nice things that you say to me. And I think those are all true and we actually should practice gratitude. I, I talk about that a lot too. I think that's good. But it's very hard for me to believe that you can say, it feels really good when you're kind to me, but I feel nothing when you're mean to me. That doesn't make sense. If it feels good when you're kind to me, I'm going to feel something when you're mean to me too. And that's okay and I shouldn't avoid that or deny that. So we want to make sure that we're letting ourselves feel. So in that question about bad feelings, um, sometimes I, I say it's more because it rhymes. Sad feelings are not bad feelings. So we shouldn't just think of the, them as good as, or bad. I get that some of them feel pleasant and some feel unpleasant. That makes sense. And even again, as I was saying before, that has something to do with this idea that some feelings make us want to approach whatever it is and some tell us to avoid. So we want to, we can recognize that, that some feel better and some don't feel good. I get that. But sad feelings are not bad feelings. We want to accept them, recognize them, be in touch with them because they're going to teach us about life. And if we allow ourselves to be open to the sadness, we can be open to the happiness. Just like if we don't allow ourselves to get close to anyone, we can never feel that goodness of being close to. We have to allow ourselves to feel all the feelings, to be in touch with them, to really feel the good ones too, and to really get everything out of life. So thank you to everyone who asked questions, and thank you to the person who asked that question about the bad feelings. And I think that's how most people think about them. But I really want to make that point very clear that there aren't just bad feelings. Some might not feel good. But to really be in touch with our feelings, we have to be willing to accept all of them, even the ones that don't feel so good in the moment. And that's the only way we can truly be connected to our feelings. And if you think you're just not a feelings person, all that tells us is you're not connected to your feelings. They're there. They're running the show much more than you realize. Just like I mentioned in the book, Jonathan Haidt, he talks about the feelings as more, or our, intu our intuition is the elephant and we're just a rider on this elephant. You might think, you're controlling things, but really the elephant is the one that's moving you one way or the other more than you are. So if you don't think your feelings matter, they're going to pretty much determine your whole life. So be aware of them, recognize them. You can still use your rational mind, but you're going to need those feelings too. You can't leave them behind. All right, we're at the end of tonight's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is The Road to Character by David Brooks. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night.